0: What's up, Written and Stoners? So, our original plan was to take this week off. I was just going to do a short thanks and Merry Christmas, and that was supposed to be it. And as I was recording that intro, it occurred to me that I wanted to give you something. A Christmas gift of sorts. For, number one, for sharing the shit out of this thing like you have been. And that it might be fun to put together a list of all of the free climbing films from the 90s that I could find for you to watch over the holidays. A little nostalgia. And then it occurred to me that I was just having a text conversation with my friend Mike Call about documenting the history of the sport. And then, of course, like it tends to do, the idea just kept growing. And like I tend to do, I just rolled with it you have to let the damn thing do what it's going to do. And now I know I've started all the other interviews this season with a story, but this one is a little bit different. And that's because Mike has told his story intertwined with Boone speed story in his film, the artist. And I have the link in the show notes so you can go watch it as soon as you finish listening. And I suggest you do that. And I'm glad he's got that out there because frankly, I wouldn't even know where to start. There's pusher holds, shaping the boss, the first macro hold, probably the greatest and most influential hold ever shaped, co-designing and creating the spot, one of the first crash pads, and almost certainly the first made to fold up and put on your back like a backpack, Uh, helping rebirth, bouldering into the climbing consciousness, and along the way, documenting it all. The PCA, yank on this fast twitch frequent flyers momentum video magazine all the while giving climbers like me in cincinnati ohio a glimpse of what climbing could be like if you were just willing to really go for it mike man welcome to written in stone psyched you're here yeah thanks for having me chris it's been a while yeah man you were just shooting in bukes is that right
1: Yeah. Yeah. We were doing a little prep for a historical film about the birth of climbing and free climbing specifically and and how um, it evolved into what it is today. So I was just doing some prep work with my good friend, Mike Beck, who I grew up with, basically, and um, interviewing uh, some of the players that are going to be in the film and just kind of trying to wrap our heads around the big picture of what this could be. So kind of a prep trip.
0: Yeah, I love to hear that. I love that you're also kind of zeroed in on the history of things and and trying to educate all these new climbers about where all of this came from. I think that's such an important message to be getting out there.
1: Yeah, there's there's not a lot of um, you know, the, the, the there's so much information I guess that that's out there that I think that it's yeah. almost overwhelming for the kids to kind of like like follow the thread and figure out where this all came from and you know, you, you, I find it fascinating. I've always been a total uh, fan of the sport and, and um, I love the history. I used to read magazines and just read the captions and try to understand who was doing what, yeah. and who did the first ascent of what and why that was cool and everything. You know, and, you know, I was lucky, lucky enough to be born into a generation of climbing when it was pretty narrow focused to the climbing magazines. I mean, that, there wasn't a lot of information out there. So everything you got was extra important and now there's so much information it's like well who cares if so and so did this in 92 or so -so, who cares if she did that in 89 or whatever it's like it's really easy to like dismiss it because it's overwhelming but I think it's really important to well actually I don't know if it's important I think it's satisfying to know where all this comes from I think that's the payoff is it gives our sport more soul and more resonance to have something like these permanent monuments out there that you can go climb on and, and you understand the history of it and that you can respect what somebody did back in 1978 or what somebody did back in 85 or whatever. And it's like, wow, these dudes were strong and they had Mm -hmm. crappy boot technology and they were, you know, they didn't have training programs and they were just making it up as they went and they were strong as shit. I mean, yeah. I mean that, that video that somebody did with Ben Moon going back and revisiting Agincourt was like amazing. Cause it's like, even he was kind of surprised. He's like, Oh yeah, this thing's nails, you know?
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, and Agincourt has played a, a a part in this season already. And after the holidays, it plays an even bigger part. Um, and Bukes in general, you know, really comes into the scene, um, Mm -hmm. during that this Agincourt conversation that I'm having later. Um, So it's cool that you're going back and doing that. And and a couple things there that you sort of reminded me of, like you said you were reading all the magazines and I was doing the same thing, like devouring everything I could. Um, But also there's something interesting that that came with the videos back then and the films back then. It wasn't like they are today necessarily where you'd get like the preemptive. This is the route. This is the grade. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of the films back then were just this long narrative. And then you had to wait for the credits yeah. uh, to see what the route was, who the climber was climbing that route, what the grade was. Sometimes the grade wasn't even there or the thing yeah. didn't even have a name yet. Um, so it was like reading liner notes on old records, you mm-hmm. know, to find out who played the keys in this song or totally. who played the, the drums in this song. Um, that's what it felt like to me. And I was so like, I couldn't wait for the credits to see what the roots were and who the climbers were yeah that's cool i mean it's it's an interesting thing to go f- follow that rabbit
1: hole of of um you know you know that there's something there that you know that there's a cultural thing happening and you want to be a part of it and to to be a part of it you feel like at least i did i feel like i needed to know more and i always wanted to know more like like who is this todd skinner fellow who is this you know Didier Rabatou guy and like all the players back then, you were just kind of like, holy crap, like they're mythical,
0: you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, man, before, before we jump into this long list of questions that I have for you, um, (laughs) I have to ask one question. If you could steal any past climbing moment of any era from another filmmaker, so you get to shoot it instead of them, what, Climbing moment would that be? Oh man, that's a good question. I mean, I
1: think I think uh, one of the most seminal moments that I can think of in in climbing history that was in my era anyway that I wish I would have been there first for or been there alongside him shooting this was Clem doing Lost Cotton Two Smoking Barrels
0: just because that's a good one.
1: I was there. I was like, Josh and I were kind of the two main people trying to do climbing films online back then. And, um, you know, I remember we were doing the, we were, we, we put that out on climax media first and before it came out in the dosage DVD. And I remember seeing that and just being like, this is absolutely one of the coolest things I've ever seen. You know, like this was pre Sharma adopting it. You know, this was like, the first look at this new world.
0: And it's just I remember watching it on Climax Media. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Sitting in my little basement with my (laughs) dial-up internet. Oh,
1: dude, the resolution
0: thing was a total nightmare.
1: I mean, it was was so brutal. (laughs) I knew what that footage looked like. And it was still standard def footage. It wasn't like high def or 4K footage. It was like, you know, 320 by 240. But I remember looking at that and seeing how clean. I mean, Josh has always been a great shooter and he was always such a great editor. He always has been. Yeah. And to see that edit and then have to compress it down to climax media resolution was brutal. <laughs> it was brutal. <laughs> Cause it's a beautiful film. I mean, it's just like, you know, and to see water in the, as an element in a climbing film mm-hmm. was such a relief. It was like this um, aesthetically just such a beautiful thing to suddenly have as an element in a climbing film, because you, you always have dirt yeah. in the background. Yeah. You always have yeah. dust and dirt and rocks. And it's like, to see the ocean just raging below these guys, it was just like, man, that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. You
0: know? Wow. That's really cool. I, I, it didn't even occur to me that you would go there, but that's such a fantastic answer. Wow. Um, I also have to know after you co-starred in three weeks in a day, um, because that film was like the one for me that I watched damn near every night. (laughs) I would watch it before, every time I went climbing to get psyched, You know, we we listened to Deadbolt for (laughs) probably a year and a half straight. Tiki (laughs) Tiki Man, exactly. Did you listen to Deadbolt as much as everybody else after that came out?
1: Dude, you know, we while we were filming that, the producers, like one of the I think it was the audio guy, um had a copy of that on tape. And we'd listen we were actually listening to that that album on the trip. And then they ended up incorporating it into the, into the film. Like they went out and got the rights to it because it was so part of our trip, you know, and like that whole, like, like dark rockabilly or whatever you ca- how yeah. you call categorize yeah, yeah. it. It was like, that was our, like, we were way into it back then, you know? That's so, so cool. yeah, we'd listen to it. I mean, we, we definitely like, I think we'd probably burned out on it pretty quickly, but it was
0: definitely in the moment for sure. Oh man. It's all that played in the gym for, <laughs> like a year and a half. And actually, a quick funny aside here, I was working at Climb Time in Blue Ash at the time. Um, the gym where like the the ABS started, you know, in the 90s at some point or late 90s maybe. And I was working there and like a Cub Scout group or a birthday party or something came in. And I remember the manager being like, hey, go go switch the music. Deadbolt was playing. They're like, go switch the music. I don't know if this is going to be appropriate for this birthday party. <laughs> so I go into the back, and I'm like rifling through the CDs or whatever it was. And I'm like, oh, this, this one will be fine. It's a soundtrack. You know, there, there won't be anything bad on this. It's fine. So I put in the Pulp Fiction soundtrack <laughs> instead of Deadbolt. <laughs> And as I'm walking out to the birthday party, this is what plays. I love you, buddy. I love you, honey bunny. Everybody, be cool. This is a robbery. you <laughs> fucking pricks! Move! And I'll execute every
1: motherfucking last one of you.
0: <laughs> <Man>. ah!
1: Ah! <laughs> Amazing.
0: All the little kids' fa- eyes were like <laughs> Oh, you changed lives, man. You changed all lives. All the parents sure. were like, what the fuck did you just do? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Not necessarily an improvement over Deadbolt.
0: No, that's not awesome. at
1: all. But it, it's um, funny that it still has that surf rock
0: sound. I know. No, same, same sound. And that's probably why it was sitting up there. Like We were so into that sound just because yep. of that Deadbolt soundtrack It's <laughs> funny rockabilly
1: there. that whole that was a moment back in the 90s It was like there was a lot of that you know floating around on snowboarding video videos yeah. and skateboarding yeah. videos and like yeah it was cool it was really cool
0: yeah so we've got a lot of ground to cover I'm positive we aren't going to get to half of it but I want to I want to really start with you and I kind of want to like how long had you been climbing before you started filming it and what on earth inspired you to do that?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't really know what year I picked up my dad's camera, but my dad had one of those old white high 8 Sony Handycam video cameras. And it was kind of new tech back then. And not, you know, like video cameras, like home video cameras used to be these big things. And Massive. You know, you'd see like yeah. soccer dads walking around with them on their shoulders and stuff. And um, I think they were maybe Super VHS or something. Um, and then my dad got this little toy and we used to like, you know, I, I would like walk around my house with it when I lived at home and I would just like record something and then play back on the TV and just be fascinated by the idea of filming mm. and, you know, just that the, the process of it was interesting to me, like, Oh wow. You know, like capturing moments. And I didn't really ever, I never had a photographic background or a filmmaking background or anything in, in school, but I just thought it was interesting. And then I would be climbing and, um, I think my dad brought his camera to the opening of the body shop, which is the first climbing gym here in Salt Lake and maybe one of the first three in the whole country. And, uh, and then he took some footage of that opening day and, and then I ended up keeping the camera and I just ended up like I had moved out at that point and I was, um, just filming me and my friends. I mean, honestly, that was, it It was just kind of like, I just thought it was interesting to kind of like shoot footage. I, 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 I thought like I didn't know what it was, but I knew there was something there and I knew I loved it. And I just, I like, I wanted to record it. And I thought that it was, it, it I, at first I thought it would just be interesting for us to look at, you know, I mm-hmm. think that was the main thing. And then really the first video I did was essentially an extension, like a, a cut down version of that idea. Instead of having to make people watch all my tapes, like, Oh, look, this was that day we went to Joe's Valley for the first time or whatever. It was right. like, um, I'm just going to put this together and compile it so that it's like all the best parts or the most interesting, funny parts or whatever. And so that's kind of like where it started. It was just like a way to show my friends, like a distilled version of all the stuff we've been shooting. And, you know, it wasn't just me filming, like, you know, Boone would pick up the camera or, you know, like my friend Craig would pick up the camera, whoever would just, the camera would just be sitting there in a bag and if something was happening, somebody would pick it up and just start filming. So I mean, a lot of that first stuff that was in my first videos was shot by all my friends and I. Like, it wasn't just me. So it, it wasn't precious. It wasn't like intentional, like, oh, let's make, a, let's make a film. It was like, we're just fucking around, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, it seems like, and, you know, maybe my timeline is very compressed because that's what we tend to do when we only know, you know, bits and pieces of what people are doing. But it seems like pretty quickly, out of the body shop came Pusher, mm-hmm. and you and Boone and Dave Bell and uh, what was the other guy's name? Rob Gilbert. Bob. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're all involved there. So, were your early years of filming like was most of that in like pursuit of marketing Pusher? Hundred percent. Is that what those early well, things were?
1: Actually, it was kind of an excuse to continue to make these videos because like, I was like, we're going to, you know, I made that first video and then it was like, I was at the same time we were starting pusher. So I, like, I think we had started pusher before I even launched that first VHS tape. And so because I was so immersed in pusher, it was like, well, of course we'll just slap a pusher. Like we'll just say it's sponsored by pusher. And you know, right. we, we followed a lot of the skateboarding industry models yeah, that's what i was so gonna
0: ask yeah it's
1: like we, we i mean we were obsessed with skateboarding and snowboarding and we'd watch everything we could get and you know like that's why i was biting a lot of copyrighted stuff and it was just like people were doing that back then you know it was just like very normal like punk rock shit yeah. to do it's just like we don't there's nothing precious about it in fact the less precious it was the more authentic it felt and the better it was and and okay. you know it, it looks you know it looks handmade and it's supposed to
0: yeah, you know, those years of of Pusher and like Boone's photos and your films um that like following your own artistic vision to create this thing really had an impact on me in in Cincinnati, Ohio, like I'm still a fairly new climber at the time. And I don't know, I don't know if I've ever told you this. I told Boone You remember the Boone's second cover photo It was the you're belaying him on at the curse. Yep. And he's got on this like wide headband, you know, (laughs) well, I had long hair back then as well, believe it or not. And that wide headband, I saw that and I was like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. And I went to every thrift store in town. And I bought every like cool color and pattern turtleneck I could find and <laughs> cut the necks off to make wide headbands. And then I sold them at the gym. And that was like my first little Amazing. climbing business. Holy shit, that's Totally crazy. inspired by that photo of Boone and what you guys were doing, like follow, wow. follow your vision, do whatever you want to do and somehow make money from it. <laughs> like, that that's seemed awesome. really cool to me. So <laughs> So thanks for that. Like, did yeah. you know you guys were having that sort of impact when you were making these things? Um,
1: no, I mean, not at first. It, it, like, I think we sold maybe 150 copies of Yank on this on VHS or something, you know, so that mm-hmm. it was like, to me, I couldn't believe 150 copies were out there in the world. So I was always surprised when somebody was like, oh, I, I, I saw you guys' video. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy, you know, and I was the one. Yeah hand shipping every single one of these VHSs in a little envelope out the door so i'd see them mm-hmm. go out to like cincinnati or wherever else but it was like yeah. you know it's it's like disconnected until you meet that person and they're like oh we watched this video it was like it was really inspiring or whatever you know like it was funny or whatever they wanted it's like it's it, it it was pretty interesting to me to think that i we were creating an audience that there was an audience for any of this stuff we were i think we were always pretty humbled by it like you know we we knew we were just fucking around and we knew that we weren't backed by any money and we knew that we like, we just thought nobody really cared, but it was still fun for us to do it anyway. It was kind of fun, a fun experiment. And mm-hmm. I was pretty entrepreneurial at the time. I was a hundred percent focused on trying to help pusher become a actual business and make money and pay myself. Cause I was like, you know, it was the eat what you kill. I, I didn't have, you know, pusher wasn't funded. It was like every dollar we made had to go back into the business to grow it. And I was pretty focused on the growth of pusher and helping it become healthy. So the pusher videos were kind of my creative outlet to just be like, you know, and shaping too, but like the videos were just a fun side project that I would do at night at home. And yeah. And it wasn't like I wasn't sitting at the pusher offices editing that stuff, you know?
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's that's very cool. You know, that I mean that's sort of what birthed my my music as well, like rapping about climbing seemed like a totally fucking absurd thing to do but it was and <laughs> i mean it was an absurd thing to do but it was like i this is a thing i enjoy can i can i combine the two you know mm-hmm. the same way those guys are combining their photography or their um sculpture and mm-hmm. their filmmaking into climbing so yeah yeah and i remember we had at the gym we had a tiny little like tv VHS combo, you know, you remember those? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it was sitting on the counter or behind the counter and we would play videos. Like it would be Yank on sure. This is playing, or you know, Three Weeks in a Day are playing. And <laughs> and people instead of climbing would stand at the counter and watch the films, you know? <laughs> That's so, amazing. <laughs> yeah. It it was so cool to think that there were these these guys out there in Salt Lake or wherever doing these rad things and we get to watch it in this little (laughs) industrial park in Cincinnati, Ohio, you know? Oh, that's
1: cool. That's cool to hear. I mean, it's, I love, I love picturing that.
0: What was the, what was the shooting and editing like? You just, you know, you just mentioned these things are being released on VHS. Like I have a, I have a three weeks in a day VHS right here.
1: Um, So three weeks in a day was actually shot by this production company in provo some some kids coming out of the provo that byu film school and they just wanted to do i think it was like their first professional film so they actually had they shot most of that on 16 millimeter film and they had a couple of high eight bolex cameras or uh, sorry uh, super eight bolex cameras that and then there was some video we shot with it because i had my camera and um sherry was dating a guy named craig who had a video camera so we were shooting our own stuff and they incorporated some of that into the video but that was professional like they had a real sound guy on that shoot they had a good dp on that shoot and you know it was a they spent some money on that thing and they they bought that rv just for the show and then they sold land it shark. The, the land shark yep and then well they had to repaint it and they sold it to one of the producer's parents or something i can't remember but i mean at the same time that was happening i was shooting my own first video and i was just about to release yank on this which was at the same time these guys were making that so it was pretty concurrent you know yeah. and um but the way i was doing it was i had a box of tapes and i would literally like you know, fill the tape up with that. Were these you know, like
0: mini DV tapes? What were they? They were like? Hi8
1: tapes. That they were way before mini DV. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, um, yeah, Hi8 is it's actually a pretty stable um, medium, but it's like low resolution and really like you know you don't have a lot of latitude in the colors. Like it's blown out, it's dark. It's like you know it's all automatic. There's nothing yep. you can do with the focus. It's just going to do what it does and. Um, but the beautiful thing is you just pick it up and roll. You don't have to think, you just turn it on and go and, 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 you know, you get what you get. And so I had a box of tapes and then I would go home and put it on my combination VHS TV set. (laughs) And I would look at the time code as it was coming up on the screen. And I would, as I I would see a scene or a, a moment that I liked, I would literally write, you know, one minute, 30 seconds, five frames to one minute thirty five seconds seven frames, and then I would put I'd give that a number based on the tape so the tape would be tape one and then that would be the first cut so basically I was teaching myself nonlinear editing without knowing that that's what I was doing and then no one in Salt Lake had a nonlinear editing system at home no that was not just it was way before that time the storage was too expensive so I knew somebody that had that knew somebody that had a video toaster editing system which was Avid. like it was like um it was kind of this new school non-linear editing digital system where you could Got do... It. So you weren't having
0: to like splice tape and all of that. No,
1: it? no. So they would ingest just this... Because storage was so expensive. Yeah. Um, I, I remember that first editor had a 10 gig hard drive. And I'm, that was mind-blowing to us because I had like a 512 totally. megabyte computer or something. You know, or, <laughs> I don't even know if I owned a computer yet, honestly. Um, anyway, so this sounds like I'm talking about the dinosaurs times. But um, anyway, so we'd ingest just enough footage to you know, not take up the whole space on her hard drive. And then I would say, okay. And and she was charging me, I think it was um, 75 bucks an hour, which was a huge discount. It was half the rate because she knew I was broke. And I would sit in there and I was like, okay, I've got 150 bucks. We got two hours. Let's make this happen. So I was like speed editing. I was like, okay, go to this tape, put in this clip and put it here. And then like, we would lay the whole thing out in an hour. And then she'd be like, she just looked at me. She's like, you mind if I just go through and just try to like make sense of this. And I was like, so we'd go through and like, you know, she's like, why don't we put this clip here? And I was like, no. And, you know, I mean, it, it was like, basically I would just fight with her a little bit, but mostly she was trying to help me just at least give it some kind of like fade ins and fade outs and kind of stuff basic for producing. <laughs> so yeah, at the end, it was like, I think I edited the whole first video in two hours, you know, and it, and it shows.
0: Well, you know, <laughs> I actually just watched Yank on this last night, um, you know, preparing for wow. this. <laughs> and and it's actually kind of fun, and it forces you to really pay attention to try to figure out like, okay, here's this quick, you know, shot change. Who is this climbing now? Right. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of interesting to have to do that instead of mindlessly just being told every single yeah. time something changes that this is the climber, this is the grade, this is the boulder. You know, it was actually it forced me to have to really like absorb it, um, to then wait for the credits and be like, okay, this climber, this climber.
1: It's interesting. I've talked to Boone about this a little bit, and it was a real stream of consciousness kind of piece, and it had you know all this, all the you know illegal shit in it, and like whatever. Like it was, it was like all the music wasn't cleared. Everything about it was like as punk as it could get because I literally didn't think anyone would ever watch it, and. Um, at the same time, there is something about it that's like, you know, it's not easy listening. It's difficult listening. Like you kind of need to engage yourself into it. So it's jarring. It's like, um, uh, you know, the more that I know about editing, the more I, I look, can look back at it and analyze it and kind of understand why, you know, it sort of works sort of like it's, it, it's just, it is full contact viewing. And I think that's kind of cool. And it, it does have that, um, you know, my history in music and growing up I was a skate I I was into skateboarding and stuff and I I liked disruption you know Mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of like what the editing style is best described as it's just nothing is smooth you know
0: (laughs) yeah yeah well from a from a climber's point of view I when I was watching it I was there's a clip in it a very short clip of Boone trying this dihedral it's in the same spot where the guy takes the big fall yep. off the top like mantling is that the dihedral that just got done recently
1: Yep. yeah just that's jack horner yeah so that was an early attempt right before he did jack horner and i wasn't there to film boone's first ascent of it um, but that footage is actually the only footage that shows the real start that boone used But like Sam Tingey repeated um, Jack Horner maybe 10 years ago or 12 years ago. Um, But people were like, well, he started one hole higher or, and you know, Sam's a tall guy and he's got a long span. So maybe he started higher than, I don't, I wasn't like playing referee with all this stuff. Somebody recently did a sit down start to Jack Horner too, which eliminates all confusion. I can't remember who did it. Um,
0: Maybe that's what I'm thinking of then. I remember seeing a couple of people do it just recently back into Vogue. I mean, little
1: Cottonwood's going through a really interesting period of the last 10 years and all the um, talent that's moved to salt Lake because of the uh, training center. They're, you know, bored and they go up the Canyon they can have fun. Like Zach Gala, all these guys are so strong can go up there and just put up new V fi- 13s and 14s and 15s and totally you know, stuff none of us could touch back then.
0: Well, I'd, I'd be absolutely remiss if I didn't ask while we're, while we're still in this early era, like, Talk to me about shaping the boss. Like what's, you know, I've got one in my gym. It was the only hold. That's not true. There were two holds that I were like, I have to have these holds in my gym, period. Um, And it's a newer pour. I wish I had an old, like original, heavy chipped up pour, (laughs) Um, but it is a newer one. So talk to me about the boss.
1: So Mark Russo and myself and Ivan Green and Mark Eller took a trip to Paris to go to Font for the first trip, our first trip. And I had studied photos of Mark Laminestrel climbing on those boulders and just like mm-hmm. thought it was just the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And we, we ended up going and climbing and we were all just, it changed our lives. Obviously it was like, holy shit, this is what, you know, bouldering, good bouldering really looks like. And, yeah. um, there was a problem there. Like one of the big three is called, um, the big boss. And, um, there's like, I don't know, there's like three, like classic V 9 V 10 boulders right next to each other in this one zone. in Coupier and anyway, so we love that they called these big slopey jug features or slopey features bosses. On the, like we just, I mean, that's what we mm-hmm. thought they were talk calling them anyway. And none of us spoke French, but um boss was like a thing they they would call and like there was this problem that we took some footage and photos on, which had those that classic font elephant skin. And we, you know, Mark and I were really creative together and Russo is a super important element in this whole thing. Like he basically roughed in the size and the, and the dome of the boss mm-hmm. and started carving the elephant skin. Cause we were both just like, how do you, how do you make your hand uh, on a sloper not pinch? Like, how do you, how do you force right. that open-handed
0: slope? His holds were so small back then. Like, that's yeah, a- everything had a thumb catch or a bull yeah.
1: hole. So it was like, you know, we were trying to force that open-handed technique of like just smashing your hand against something and dropping your elbow because you can't you know you can't just crimp it you can't pinch it you have to just purely oppose it yeah so it was kind of a project that we both whittled away at for a week or two and you know it's literally like I'd be in the office you know taking orders and then I'd walk back in there and spend 45 minutes tweaking the elephant skin or he would like go back there and tweak something and it was a very collaborative thing. I mean, Mark had a huge, you know, like we we both shaped that together. And uh, he's, he's so reclusive that, you know, it's, I don't even know if he's on social media. I don't think he is, but like he, he deserves like every bit of as much credit on that thing as I did as I have. Um, But anyway, so we um, were, we were almost done with it. And the whole thing used to have elephant skin on the whole dome. And then I was like, well, that doesn't make sense to waste all this plastic, for only one option. It's basically the same, all 360. So I basically took a photo of Mark Laministro climbing on this boulder problem in font where he's doing that exact angle that that old hold had this like perfect open-handed, no thumb indention, smooth side. And I I basically put that feature onto the opposite side, onto one side of the feature so that it had an option. And I think that's one of the things that really works with that hold is that you have all these different variants you can do with that hold. You can like, you know, turn it into a side pole feature or like a mantle feature or whatever. But
0: yeah, when you flip it, it becomes a different hold.
1: Yeah, yeah. And after a while, the guys in the pouring room started making tweaks of that hold, where they jam stuff behind the mold to change the shape of it. And they came up with the baby boss and yep, the beast and, poured it and yep, yeah, short poured it. That became like I think they did a whole set. We we did a whole set of holds that were like I don't know, eight or ten holds that were monster sized, but different variations of the boss.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, just to like explain to some of the people listening who, who weren't around in the nineties, like holds back then were generally pretty small and they were pretty heavy. You know, they were this solid, um, really chippable material. And that was the first hold that was macro that was Mm -hmm. big and, and now you walk into a gym and every hold you see, yeah. you know, even, even yeah. if you can only use a small part of it is massive.
1: Yep. Well, and it's interesting to look at what people are doing with volumes, you know, right? Like the, yeah. the wooden volumes, it's like taking that idea and extrapolating even bigger and bigger and bigger and making it more cost-effective. So you could put these giant hollow shapes on the wall and change the entire geography of the wall. And yeah. and totally. I think that's really cool. I mean, it's, it's cool to watch what's gone on with the hold industry and, and, you know they've like everybody uh, it's an obvious aha moment where you're like, oh, this changes the entire like shape of this wall or the angle of this wall because you've got this giant dark target shaped um volume on it, so suddenly yeah. what was the slab is now steep or vice versa you know
0: yeah change change the game for sure mm-hmm. um sort of last question about this era, like last specific question that I just want to know because I'm a nerd and I I love knowing these little factoids. That footage of Stephen Jeffries dropping out of the rafters onto the campus board. Did you shoot that? No, he he shot that himself actually. Did he? Um, So this
1: was kind of a common thing with the Yank on this series was people would just have cool footage and they knew that I was putting out videos and they would just give me the footage to put in the videos. So Stephen was really good at Um, you know, creatively shooting what he was up to. And he was a beast back then. I mean, he was like, he could keep up with Jim Carr. And he could keep up with, with Chris Sharma. Like they would come to like all the best climbers in the world would come here for the outdoor retailer trade shows. And Steven could hang with anybody and especially on slopey things. But I mean, he was a, he was a beast back then. So he shot that, that drop himself. And I was like, this has to go into, I think I put it in high life, but yeah, that was, that was cool footage. I think yeah, a lot of people cool. emulated that. I, I mean, it's like, it, it looks like an, a surefire way to blow up your elbows, but.
0: <laughs> Among other things. Yeah. Um, and that sort of brings me to another question. Like watching the, the films and not knowing Stephen personally, like he's a very quiet, you know, sort of understated guy. As Chris is, as, you know, Boone can be. Um, but they all turn on this like massive intensity mm-hmm. when they climb. Um, was Steven like the most intense climber of the whole group? He seemed like it in mm-hmm. film, and I'm just curious what it was like watching not only him but all of them turn on that intensity.
1: You know, it's funny. Salt Lake has a real, and I don't know if this is true of all the different scenes, but Salt Lake had this real legacy of being like humble bragging it was kind of like Mm -hmm. you know it was very competitive i mean you know you know dave bell basically invented pusher because everybody could burn him off on crimps and he wanted to make holds that nobody else could hold on to that he could win like he wanted to beat people and it was just it was all in good fun but you know steven would hang back like it's funny calling him intense because you know he's more of a silent assassin like he would yeah. Watch what Jim or Boone or Dale or one of these guys were doing. And then he'd like, you know, he was like, he'd sit back and just watch. And then he would just walk up and do it. And, it, you know, it, it was just like, his favorite thing to do is to burn those guys off. Cause it was like, you know, he grew up idolizing them and then he surpassed them. And it was so fun for him to like, you know, just stroll up and just smash a problem that the great Jim Carr was struggling on or trying to do too. You know, it's like, He loved that. So the competition was there. It was just in this kind of low-key, you know, like I want to burn
0: off my friends kind of vibe, you know? Yeah. Boone Boone told me once that when you guys showed Jerry and Ben Joe's Valley, that it was a similar situation that you're like, oh, we're going to bring Steven up here and have him, you know, (laughs) just crush these guys.
1: Yeah. I mean, Steven was definitely one of the main guys developing – like all the new stuff in Joe's. Um, and I think he he definitely found Black Lung first. And I think he'd been trying it, but he showed Ben and Jerry that thing. And then Ben just was like, you know, those the Brits are like shameless about, like they both just, they all want to do the hardest things. And it's not, there's no embarrassment about it. It's like, no, totally. this is, I'm not leaving here until I do this problem. And that's yeah. where Ben was at. He was like, and I don't think he was necessarily trying to do it before Steven. It was just like, Ben knew he could do it and he knew it was a new level of difficulty for Joe's Valley. And, you know, we were out to, you know, make a video. So we were shooting black lung at the time and, um, you know, Ben was obsessed and just wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't stop going back to it. And, and I think Steven might've even done the second ascent of that thing. I don't even know, but he was, he was fairly close, I think, but you know, that's what makes great climbers the best is they, they just, they're the ones that actually do it, you know?
0: Yeah. You just, you just made me, you forced me into asking another question here. Um, you did the black lung video, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super classic moment in like, I think that was like 2000, maybe late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. I think so. Inescapable moment. Black lung was a, was a real moment for the climbing uh, industry community. And just recently I discovered blung. Have you heard of this? Mm -hmm. So, blung is a variation of black lung in which you do, I think, just the first move of black lung and then you jump out to that sloper. And in your film, there's footage of, like, my thought was, oh, Ben just didn't notice that sloper. But in the footage, there's, Ben is standing, I think, on somebody's shoulders and he's holding that sloper while brushing the crimp next to it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> which essentially has turned Black Lung into an Eliminate. Interesting.
1: Huh? Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't, I haven't really followed what's been going on with that route, that, that route. I know that there are variations to resident evil and I know that there, you can actually, I think you can jump to the Waco at the top of Re- resident evil as well off of black lung. But mm. I don't, it's funny. I just saw something,
0: Maybe I think was, Jason Cale was the one who sort of pioneered the jump to the sloper. That might be right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it's interesting. Like
1: somebody just did it maybe last week I saw on social media and, um, might've been Sean Bailey or something. I don't know. I mean, he just hiked it, just, you know, yeah, crushed it. And of course, yeah. but, um, you know, maybe it's more like going back to what we were talking about earlier, where it's like, these things are monuments, uh, or art pieces on their own. And, yeah it might be a variant but it's it's kind of cool to do the problem that ben did you know like yeah his way and and if you're strong enough to do it both ways why not you know experience yeah. that
0: too of course i think that's just a natural progression like climbers mm-hmm. getting better and better and better they're going to find new ways different totally. ways yeah there's new
1: movement um philosophies in bouldering that helps those kind of moves get easier i don't know i mean there's like I mean, the tech that people are using now for um, training for bouldering and and the comp style problems, it's like, it's certainly going to open up a whole new realm of
0: how to do these old problems in a whole new way that makes them much easier. Totally. So were you like mainly shooting your group of friends back then or when you traveled to, say, Font, were the locals getting in, you know, like sneaking into the films? Were you looking for International climbers to shoot back then.
1: Um, you know, I, I think you know. Mark and I, Mark Russo and I, started Smack Magazine, which was the first online multimedia magazine ever. And it was during the dial-up era when it was impossible to yeah. get high-resolution anything. So maybe once a week we'd put out a little tiny thumbnail video of somebody doing something. So I was trying to make that relevant at the same time as doing Pusher and doing my own videos and. You know, it was just like this um, creative expression that Mark and I had. And I wanted to do relevant things, for sure. I wanted to shoot things that were happening in the bigger climbing world. And, I mean, having Ben and Jerry on Black Long and shooting um, Yuji Hirayama and Francois LeGrand when we did... Um, oh, when our, they when they traveled uh, the U.S. Yeah, when we, this this film called The Professionals. And, you know, like, that, they were all, like you know, my heroes growing up, you know, I mean, those guys were like beyond mythical to me. And, and, um, and they were also relevant in the moment too. Like they were, they were the strongest people in the world at the time. And so I was always trying to shoot what I thought was interesting and relevant to the bigger audiences. But I mean, to start with, it was just me and my friends, of course,
0: man, I, I totally forgot about the professionals. I don't know how that slipped to my mind. Like that was a, <laughs> that was a cool moment too. Like because they got shut down on a few things.
1: Oh yeah, most of it. Yeah, I, it's funny. I just saw Francois in in uh, Bukes last week or two weeks ago, and you know he's great. He's, he's, his son is a crusher. His son's climbing nine A's. You know, like mm-hmm. Francois still out there bolting roots in Bukes. He's 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 a total lifer. You know, he's like completely. You know, it's not just that he was the world champion for ten straight years or whatever it was. Yeah, I mean he's he fundamentally loves rock climbing.
0: Yeah, that's. I think that's one of the things that sort of the thread that runs through all of those like superstars of the nineties was uh, as I do more and more research, I just keep hearing, keep reading, you know, one of the things that made him so good is he just loved climbing or the thing that made her so good was she loved climbing and was, was just a lifer was just absorbed into the community wherever they went. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know if we can say that about the strongest climbers nowadays who who come out of the gyms. You know, I'm not trying to disparage that at all. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a, a different time where it's easier to come out and climb hard things, and you don't have to really dig into the community and travel across the world to find the next hardest thing. Yeah, um, yeah, it's true. That's an interesting thing. And Francois plays plays a, a fun part in an episode I just made about uh the french versus the british and kind of this back and forth that they had he he sort of gets the last word years later yeah um, and that comes i think end of next month but cool but yeah it it's such a such an interesting thing to like see that all those superstars are still at it yeah yeah is still
1: out there like doing first ascents i mean i just we went and climbed with him for a few days in Oregon. like he's they're all just 100 percent lifers and you know jibe's kids all climb hard they're super like they, they're just a, a climbing family and it's just it, it makes me happy to see that you know if you have an idea of who your heroes are and then you see them out there actually just doing the dirty work of building a trail or you know bolting a new route and you just realize they're just like us you know they're just like they just happen to be
0: better at it than us. <laughs> you know, like yeah. they, they love yeah. it just as much. That's cool. Totally. All right. I got a, I got a series of questions here. Um, most impressive non-American thing you saw in the nineties on your travels, like in, in person saw. Oh man. I know I didn't prep you with this one. So <laughs> take your time. Yeah. I mean, in the nineties, or in that general era. I know, if you're anything like me, like the 90s blur into the 2010s. Yeah,
1: yeah. well, it's funny because my first, like my my, my uh, professional career started really when I think about it being professional when I did frequent flyers. So um, that was 2000. But um, gosh, you know, I watched GBay when he did the first ascent of um cannibals in hell mm. and that was during the snowboard competitions when you know Todd Skinner was coming in and doing burning and Lynn Hill did the second ascent of it and like they, that was just the our first taste of international levels of climbing like we watched Didier Rabitou almost do the first ascent of the of what is now Dead Souls mm. and just the power he had was just mind blowing like we were just like holy crap this dude like i've never seen anybody climb with so much force at that time and i was like that was pretty mind blowing so yeah my first international kind of mind-bending experience was at my home crag. These guys at that level who were climbing A B plus already and the you know, the standard in Salt Lake was, you know, 13C maybe was the hardest thing at the at the time. But to watch these guys climbing 514s and putting up putting up hard roots on our turf and and then we were able to immediately get on the roots and try them and see what how it compared, it was like you could really tell how far ahead of us the French were at the time.
0: You know, you know, it, I hadn't thought about this, but it's super important to have those folks come over and do those things because you've got a guy like Boone there mm-hmm. in Salt Lake who, if given the right sort of training ground, which would be these harder routes, he's going to excel. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a much harder thing to excel when the hardest route there is 13C and it's up to you. Right to create the next level.
1: That's the whole thing. Is like Boone was bolting his own hard roots, and he was like, you know, he could repeat the hardest things when you go travel on the road to other areas. Like he spent time in Bukes, and he he did really well there, and he did well in Smith Rocks, and he did well, you know, when he travel anywhere. But he realized that if he was going to climb really hard, he's going to have to find these roots and bolt them himself because there just wasn't the options back then, you know. And that's that's another thing about the like going back to what we were talking about earlier with the gym generation. They don't have to discover. They have it handed. Like it's all in guidebooks and apps on their phone. Like people can go walk up to any crag in the world and dial up the hardest routes at that area on their phone and not have to like have that creative spark of like, shit, I've got to hike a 60 pound pack up that 45 minute hike to get to that crag and then find a route and clean it and bolt it and prepare it and then try it and hope it's the right grade for me. And, you know, like, there's just um, there's an adventurous side to that, that I feel like not to sound like an old man shouting at clouds, but I feel like there's something about that. That's really rewarding. It's like, it's not just that it's like, you should go bolt routes. It's like, no, it's actually kind of a really cool aspect of this thing. It's like, like putting yourself on the line, doing what Boone and Jeff Patterson and those guys did where they were like going up to entirely new cliffs, like the Virgin river gorge and being like, well, I think that we can climb this, you know? And and maybe that era is over. I don't know. Maybe that's just that was just a, by necessity what we had to do to find climbing areas and to create climbing for ourselves. But um, I feel really lucky that we were born during that time. I mean, I think Boone does too, and Jeff Patterson's told me the same. It's like we were just doing what was fun to us, you know.
0: Yep. Yeah, and I think you know, bringing Jeff into the conversation is interesting because one of the things I've been sort of realizing throughout this season is. While my initial idea was to highlight the person who did this first thing, you know, that it's so much more than that. And I got into this in the Action Direct versus Hubble uh, episode, where I think it's more important that there were these groups of people all pushing each other mm-hmm. around this common goal. You know, like there, you know, maybe there's a Boone Speed and a Jeff Peterson and a Bill O'ran and you know, whoever else out there all trying to bolt the next hardest thing, all trying to do the next hardest thing. And then later there's Sharma and Steven and Obi and Jared all pushing each other Mm -hmm. in the same spaces to do the next hardest thing
1: completely. That's
0: more important than who sort of becomes the the cover person for it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I think that there's far too much emphasis put on, who does something first I, I i just saw something today that somebody made a t-shirt called nobody cares if you that you climb 513 and i thought it's brilliant because it's basically the ego and the, the the false sense of um who your personality is like what your personality is is based on how hard you climb is the most false target ever because no one gives a shit really the what what i think is more inspir- inspiring than almost anything and and granted you got Things that Adam, Andre is doing, or or you know, Sebuin or whoever these people are doing are incredibly inspiring because they're pushing the levels. But beyond that, like none of us are really climbing that hard, and nobody really cares. But what does matter are the people who are putting up new routes, keeping access open, maintaining these routes, keeping good relations with relationships with land managers, and allowing us to be as selfish as we are on our weekends. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's the thing to me. And, and maybe I'm just. Again, sounding like an old man shouting at clouds, but it's like that's the stuff that really does make an impact on the general. Even if it's unsung, even if no one knows about it, like to me, when I think about people like Bill Boyle who bolted probably seventy percent of the roots in in Utah and City of Rocks and Red Rocks, I mean nobody knows who Bill Boyle is, and he doesn't care. He loves doing it. He's a work. He's a workaholic, and he is so. um, You know, I mean, I, I can't think of a more prolific root developer that I know of that's done more to generate our sport than him. And he doesn't, you know, he climbed, he, at his peak, he was climbing five thirteen, but it wasn't like he was out to climb the hardest things. He just wanted to climb everything. Yeah,
0: totally. I'll, I'll also add to that. Like, it's also inspiring beyond the Adam Andres and Seb Buens to see anybody like really, pushing themselves and trying hard and trying to do the thing and going for it like i think that's one of the things i really loved when i first saw three weeks in a day is there was it was his name dave that was Mm -hmm. there that was climbing like 11d Mm -hmm. you know like that was his project and he's talking about how boone convinced him to go for it and (laughs) you know for me being a relatively new climber i think i've been climbing a little over a year at that point it was like wow that's cool like here's this guy pushing into 512 at the same Mm -hmm. place that I am and he's on this climbing film yeah you know so that was really cool to see and and that inspires me just as much as the person who's the first to do a thing
1: I think that's the thing that Sharma did so well that had one of the biggest influences that that he made the biggest influence with is how hard he tried and how he didn't care about climbing you know like getting scrappy and that is inspiring to a beginner because you can realize how much harder you can actually try. And pushing out of your comfort zone and trying harder is actually more important than being stronger. And I I think that stuff does translate. And Chris is a special case. Like I think he's he's a pretty unique um translator of climbing to humans because I think it's inspiring, even if you can't climb five fifteen D, he had there's something about him you're kind of like you want to emulate, you know?
0: Yeah, to watch that effort level that mm-hmm. he puts in. Well, I, I was introducing Boone at a comp once years ago. It was like a gym opening and a comp and uh, Chris was there as well, I believe, but I was introducing Boone. I was MCing the event and Boone's like, dude, none of these kids are going to know who I am. <laughs> you know. And I was like, I, I got this, hold on. <laughs> and I was like, Boone Speed was Chris Sharma before there was Chris Sharma.
1: Yeah, I would agree with
0: that. And I think, that sort of clued everybody in, and it worked because Chris is standing there nodding as well. You know, right. um, but you were in a pretty unique situation in that you got to be up close and personal watching these two sort of successive—maybe uh, they're not successive generations, but kind of. Yeah. Um, of the best American climbers, you know, Boone into Chris, and there was sort of a passing of the torch. You know, For at sure. necessary evil. That that you were there for, yeah. Um, they're they're different personalities, but they have some things in common. Uh, was it different shooting the two of them?
1: Um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously really super lucky to have front row seats to that like whole era, and um, you know, I I became pretty almost like I, t- I would take it for granted that Chris was going to do something fucking mind blowing every time I shot with him. Yeah. And he was like, you know, like you could probably ask Josh Lowell the same thing, but uh, you know, he's one of those dudes that you never ever bet against Chris ever. Like no matter how stupid the thing he's trying looks, how <laughs> far away from it he seems, how bad the conditions are, how late in the trip, you know, whatever, like never bet him out cause he will blow your fucking mind every time. And it, it's like, you know, his batting average, On on success to failures is really really high success rate, you know. And so I was really lucky that when we go out shoot, I knew I was going to get gold somehow. Like we were just going to like I flew to China and did a a shoot with him in Yangshuo, and you know, and it was really a recreational trip. It wasn't about climbing hard. It was about introducing harder routes to the climbing scene over there, and just kind of being an ambassador to the sport. And still, even then, he was like every day we'd go out, he'd be like on sighting a 14a that was the hardest route of the crag and then he would put up something next to it that was a 14c that was look it looked throwaway. it looked so easy for him you know it's like and it was just you know like i did a video with him where we went to um spain and i shot with he and Dilo ajeda and we yeah. went to um santa Lina and i said chris what are you going to climb on and he's like well i want to try you know he was trying um Oh gosh, what was the route at the point? It was uh, might have been Neanderthal or something. He was trying, mm-hmm. anyway. And he and I was like, well, okay, like, what are you? How, what's your day gonna look like? You're gonna warm up, like, uh, do some warm ups and then chill for a while. And he's like, well, I guess I should warm up. And he never used to warm up, so he's just like, I guess I'll warm up. And he <laughs> goes over to the left side of the cliff, and on sites of 14B, you know, as a warm up. And I was like, I mean, you know. When I was growing up, that kind of shit would make front page hot flashes news oh, like that would sure. be like on a on a casual warm up he' on site to the fourteen b before he tries his hard route, you know, and it's like that's just like that kind of stuff happens all the time with Chris, even still like his, i mean in his forties he's still doing mind blowing shit
0: yeah, and I mean, to put that in perspective, like we we talked about Agent earlier, that was the first fourteen b in France, yeah, you know like one of the first three in the world, I think. Maybe the yeah. second, second or third. Yeah. Um, and and Chris is just doing it as a warm up. That's yeah, cool. yeah. I mean,
1: it's it's. Um, I've never seen anybody. I mean, for sure, there's so much talent right now. That like when I go back, go look at social media and see what people are doing now. It's like, like true, like Sean Bailey, Zach Gala, Nathaniel Coleman, all these American climbers that are so freaking good and so strong and like yeah. they speak climbing so fluently that it's almost like it's hard for me to kind of like put it in perspective how deep the talent pool is now the skill the the, mm-hmm. the level um but at the time you know chris was so far head and shoulders of everybody else that um it was really a special thing to just watch him do his thing and then even the good oh. climbers who were around were like i have no idea what he's doing right now you know and that's a that's a pretty special era to be in when you have the you know and this gets thrown around all the time with sports metaphors but you've got the michael jordan or the kelly slater of your your sport Mm -hmm. in front of you live right now he's not it's not a myth it's it's happening in front of you that that's a really special privileged place to be i mean i I feel really grateful to know him and to get to be friends with him and and to witness so many of these moments with him because it's I mean, it it doesn't happen where you have the one person stand above the talent pool so far very often.
0: Yeah, the the whole world talent pool, amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris is a little more laid back, in my experience anyway. A little more laid back than Boone, and Boone's such an artist um, with his like own artistic opinions. Was Boone harder to shoot? Like, were there ever arguments about like, no, dude, you should be getting the shot from over there? <laughs> no, I mean Boone's always left me to do my thing and. Like,
1: um, you know, there were times when we were shooting frequent flyers where I was like, I knew Boone was trying a project over there at that, that end of the other at the end of the ba- valley or something. And I was, you know, getting some shots of the rest of the crew over here. And I'd be like, Boone, just don't do it till I get there. Cause I, if we don't <laughs> shoot it, we won't get it, you know? And then he ended up doing this problem, uh, called snake eyes off camera. And I was like, you know, just tearing my hair. Out. I'm like, dude, that was like the highlight of this. Segment and I don't have it now. And, and and he was like, it was really tweaky, like mono climbing on these small, small limestone pockets. And he wasn't yeah. able to do it again. But he did this rad first ascent of a V10. And I was like, you're killing me, man. But I mean, it's like such a small thing, really. We had plenty of moments. Totally. But I mean, Boone's super easy for me to work with. We have a really um secondhand language where we, we don't really, you know, he lets me do my thing. He does his thing. Filming with him was always just more like, Shooting my friends and um, super yeah. low key, and all credit to Boone for being the pioneer he was. He didn't have that batting average that Sharma had, where every single time he went out, he was doing the, a new hard first ascent or a new on-site. Like, yeah, you know, Boone's effort on Super Tweak was his doggedness. It mm. wasn't that that route suited him; it was that he just kept going back to it because he knew it was hard, and he was at his peak, and he he knew that he could do something next level, and what made that ascent really monumental was just that he just kept going back to it until he did it you know and it was a multi-year effort and it's very different style than the way sharma kind of until until he hit realization sharma hadn't ever tried anything that long you know right like he'd do things in a couple of days and that was he was doing the hardest things in the country in a couple days so yeah you know for boone it was more like he was a lot more blue collar about it it was like he, he he had to like get stronger You know, go back, be demoralized. You know, multiple seasons, and then finally do it, which is
0: a it was a different thing, but it was really cool to see too. Mm -hmm, For sure. Were there other moments in your shooting career that you you either just like didn't have the camera, you oh dude, memory was gone, the batteries died, and you just missed it. Here's the most embarrassing
1: one. I'll tell you the most embarrassing one. This is this is where I wanted to
0: like literally
1: like jump off a bridge I was filming Boone so I bolted ice cream in hell th- and I bolted this thing next to it called Sideshow Bob and
0: I didn't know you bolted that
1: yeah so I when, when I was climbing in hell one time I saw the footholds that people were using for wizards and I was like wouldn't it be cool and this is all British inspired like wouldn't it be cool if you could climb on the footholds of wizards and make a root out mm-hmm. of it like if you could climb up those tiny little edges and and essentially that's what ice cream is like I ended up having to reinforce holds with glue because that's the nature of the rock there um essentially core setting the route and then I was like you know as I did I would just like hand boon roots I couldn't do and I was like okay go for it dude I think it's hard and I think it'll go and I'd been doing root setting a lot back then so I kind of had a sense of what was possible a a little bit so he set to it and ended up doing it and the day he did it I filmed it and I was like this is sick, like a 14 C here in hell. This is amazing. Like, like it's basically like a V 12 boulder problem, you know? And, uh, and because I was shooting on tapes and it, like, there was all this like shuffling of tapes around one way or the other, I ended up recording over the first half of his ascent. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, I oh, was wow. like, I aged 10 years right then. I was like that. <laughs> like I was so like, I had to tell Boone, I had to like, I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? Like I couldn't believe I did it. Like it's like the number one thing you don't do is put old tapes back in the camera, you know, but I think I was, you know, maybe I I might've had a mix up with what I was putting in the camera. Something happened where I just recorded over with something completely not like useless. It was like, so I ended up editing what what's in, I think it was in movement. I think on this three, we ended up putting the ice cream footage out, but it was, edited together with earlier footage of his attempts. So it's a total, like it's one of the first times where I was like, I couldn't put the actual send in the film because it was like, I didn't have it. I just literally deleted it essentially. So that was a massive fuck up. And I always wish I could have gone back in time and not done that, but (laughs) whatever. It's how you learn, I guess.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. I definitely feel that. Like there, there are some things in my creative career that I'm like, oh no, how the fuck did I just delete that (laughs) and I can't recover it? Yeah. Yeah. I feel that pain. Uh, what's the most non-Sharma impressive thing you've ever seen? Impressive, improbable, make you want to like look away from the viewfinder and just see it with your own eyes kind of Hmm. moment. You know, um, yeah, there's, there's been a lot.
1: I mean, I shot a little bit with Josh Lowell and Lisa Rans over in the Gritstone mm-hmm. when she did Gaia and that was harrowing oh, to shoot. No um, doubt. I'd want to look away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I was, I was basically like committed to the, to the shoot. I was definitely trying to keep it framed and keep it like, you know, like shooting with Josh is always a privilege because he's such a great filmmaker. And, um, but I was like, yeah, it was scary to watch, but no, I, no. I did a shoot for like a behind the scenes shoot for Jimmy Chin's National Geographic um, cover, you know, his, his article on, on um, Yosemite where it had Alex, you know, standing on the ledge and all that. And um, yeah. I, I was shooting some footage for that, for Camp 4 Collective. And I went out to separate reality with Alex and Jimmy and Mikey Schaefer. And I wasn't supposed to be filming the actual ascent. I was just shooting the behind the scenes of it. So it was kind of like the making of the photograph. So, you know, Jimmy's yeah. in the back of the cave and Alex goes through it and, you know, has gear, kind of climbs through it, figure, checks it out. And nobody really talked about it, but, you know, we kind of whispered to each other that he was probably going to try to solo it. And I didn't want to yeah. think about it because it was like, it's the most exposed, so exposed. 512. Yeah. Like, it's so scary, like way up off the deck. like You wrap into it right off the horizontal earth and then you are immediately, you know, whatever, 1500 feet above the, the ground. And, uh, yeah, I remember being next to Mikey when he was holding a flash for Jimmy and I was just shooting kind of like, you know, the behind the scenes stuff. And I remember seeing him do it. And this was before free solo, but I think this was kind of the early connection that Jimmy had with Alex when they first formulated this idea of this film and what Alex really wanted to do, which was obviously free solo, El Cap. So that was, you know, I'd filmed with Alex before and I knew he was capable of me- messed up stuff like i had shot some stuff with him in Indian Creek where he did belly belly full of bad berries and um yeah. air Sweden and some of these things and it was right before he soloed um Touchstone or not um, Touchstone uh uh Moonlight Buttress
0: Moonlight yeah
1: and it was literally like a week before he he soloed that so I heard that he had soloed Moonlight Buttress a week after we filmed all, all that stuff in Indian Creek and I was like are you fucking kidding me like Hard 512 Slippery yeah parallel sided multi-pitch big, big like <laughs> and but that set the you know that was the education process for alex to kind of get you know to build to the big real project and yeah so that was that was definitely scary
0: oh man i bet i i can't even imagine i don't like watching it when my friends are soloing short little things yeah no i can't imagine watching a, a separate reality solo oh
1: yeah i mean it's been done before like it it was like i think wolfgang sold it yeah yeah i mean it's it's not even like that hard of a route really it's just it's hard to wrap your head around how fucking exposed that is and like you can't help but picture like there's there's the roof and then there's this 45 degree slab below it just barely covering the edge of the boulder problem Mm -hmm. but essentially you know, you can just picture the body going down 45, whatever feet, bouncing off the 45 degree slab and just ejecting straight out over the abyss. And there's just no stopping your momentum, you know, like you're not going to grab a tree or anything. You're just going to eject straight out over the abyss and just go 1500 feet or whatever to your death, you know, like, Oh man, it's just hard not to picture that stuff, you know,
0: for sure. For sure. Was there a, is there an early Sharma moment that stands out? Like, obviously, you know, he's, he's Chris Sharma. He, he's always been Chris Sharma. And when he first burst onto the scene, he was already impressing and surprising everybody. Um, but before you really understood that his batting average was so high, was there a moment that really stood out to you?
1: Man, you know, honestly, it goes back to the very beginning. When I first met him, the first trip that we shot him on Necessary Evil, we heard about this kid that had done super tweak and, you know, he was now down in the VRG and he was going to try Boone's project, Necessary Evil. And so Boone and I just barreled down there, like, okay, let's see this for ourselves. And, you know, we got to, we got to shoot this kid. Like, I we, you know, it's like hearing about Bruce Lee before you met him, you know, it's like, let's go see what this is all about, you know? Right. So, and also it was kind of like, there'd been a lot of like wunderkind rumors like people that were like supposed to be the next big thing coming out of the gym generation and you'd hear about them and some of them were really pretty strong but you know like not not a lot of them lived up to their promise at that point I mean they were definitely strong kids but it wasn't like a leapfrog level but we got down there and saw Chris met him and he was just really young and just so like innocent and and kind of a punky little kid like kind of a trash talker and just Mm -hmm. punk and he tried to warm up like it was again one of those things where it's like well dude are you going to warm up and he's like oh i guess i mean what should i do and boone's like well that's you know this that's the fall of man that's like a 13b and if you just do it to the first anchor it's like 11d or something or 12a or something and you can just warm up on that you know and chris goes up on it and falls off of it like four times (laughs) <laughs> like he's so pumped dude he couldn't even like he could barely get to the first anchor he was so pumped he was like you know just coke bottled pumped and i was like looking at boone like this is the fucking future you know like what the fuck like that's 11 fucking d you know and um, you know and then he literally like as pumped as he was he literally just like pulled the rope tied in and I don't remember if he did it that try or the next try, but he like basically did it just completely pumped stupid off this twelve a warm up, and did you know the first ascent of the f- you know first first American five fourteen C first ascent you know, and it's like then we got it. Then it was kind of like oh he just was bored, like that yeah. there were too many yeah. holds on that route for him. They, like he just, he grabbed all the holds instead of just being specific. Like it, it was no pretty clear. Yeah, like he was just distracted. It was like it's like you know having Einstein do basic long divisions like doesn't make sense to him.
0: You know, <laughs> totally. Wow, that's that's amazing. It's funny how like the belief that those guys have, you know, that oh I'm stupid, yeah. pumped, I'm just going to pull the rope and go anyway. Yeah, yeah. Like nowadays. Our, our like adherence to better tactics would force us to rest for an hour. Right. Um, and it just didn't matter. Didn't yeah. matter to him at all.
1: Well, that's the thing I think that goes all the way back again too. that Chris sets, that set Chris apart and changed climbing forever, which was the controlled ethic of the French technique focus of the eighties and the nineties. And, and this idea of like being so like, overwhelmingly technical and precise. And that's yeah. what everyone understood to be good climbing. Chris threw all that out the window and just got ugly with it. Like he just showed his yeah. game face and just decided if I can grab that hold, then I can grab the next hold. And that's all that fucking matters. And that's what Chris, he took the seriousness out of climbing to, to this, like where it was so cerebral and everybody was trying to make it so like, Oh, I need to work on my footwork. Cause that's what everybody says I should do. It's like, Chris was like, you know what? Actually, if I take less time p- putting my foot on that crappy sloper and I just jump to the next hole to campus through, I'm done with the route while you're still thinking about it. And, and right, that right. mentality of like carelessness or like, again, non-preciousness really was, it changed the attitude of an entire generation of climbers. And, and it's yeah. still to this day, like if you look at a run and jump problem in the gyms at the comp style problems, it's like, you have to have that abandon to be able to succeed. You can't be controlled. You have yeah. to let that go you have to let it go and take the take the brakes off just like and i think chris was the first person i'd ever seen do that and prove his theory prove like and he, he wasn't out to prove anything He was just doing his natural thing but to see him do that it was like all that other crap that was being talked about that was my generation was like technical controlled you know you know like having good technique was a thing it was like you know you know people would talk shit about other people that didn't have good, good technique, and Chris came along with ostensibly bad technique and kicked everybody's asses, so
0: it was like, yeah. okay, well that I, theory I remember know. hearing all the old dudes in the gym be like, "Oh, you know, that kid doesn't have footwork, Wait till he gains some yeah. weight, you know yeah, yeah, totally Wait, wait till he doesn't weigh ninety eight pounds, yeah, never going to be able to rock live
1: <laughs> yep, totally I mean, that's what made best of the West so fun was he was like freaking huge, he was yoked, yeah. you know, like he had yep. so much muscle, and everybody was like well, he's washed up now. You know, like there's no way he's going to do the same thing because we'd seen it so many times, like young climbers who are really strong, super light. They get to be grown ups and they can't figure out how to move that mass around. Right. Mm-hmm. But Chris could, I mean, he got stronger. He yeah. got better actually.
0: Do you have a favorite of your films? <sighs> um, well, Frequent Flyers
1: changed my life in terms of the course of it. So that one's always enduring for me. Um, Best of the West was really, um, I think, one of my favorite um, projects because it was so, it was so like, we only shot for 10 days and what we came out with was that film. And we it was just stacked with the, all the right people um, in an incredible venue, um, you know, like climbing with the. The best climber in the world at the time and the the vibe of it was right you know using fugazi as a soundtrack everything about that that um i feel like it was a pretty complete film on its own like i feel like it's rewatchable, and um i'm always i'm always proud to hear like when somebody tells me like I, I i think maybe it was um leif gash or something was telling me that they have an inaugural you know viewing of best of the west whenever the season opener is in Waco, and it's like that kind of shit warms my heart, you know, because it's like to be in that world- class area and have people look at that as nostalgic but important is really cool for me. I mean, it's like I'm not gonna lie. It's, it means a lot to me that people would actually care enough to watch
0: these old handmade climbing videos, you know yeah, totally. Well, question real quick was, was Sharma doing just do it in Fast Twitch? In Fast yep, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, there's a scene in that that I've always thought was hilarious. And I'm, you were close to Dale, so I'm curious what your reaction was during that scene. Like, Dale looks completely fucking incensed that, <laughs> that Sharma is taking his shirt off yeah. on the route. He's, so, he's basically like, he's just disrespecting it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, and he, he wasn't meaning to, I'm sure, but also he didn't, right, he was right. a punk. Like, he didn't give a shit. Like, 13C is easy for him. And that's the first part of that route is 13C. And right. for him, he's like on a good hold and he's just stemming. He's like, I'm hot. I'm going to take my sweatshirt off, you know? And I think Dale, his attitude in the interview that we did, which was never meant to be on camera, by the way, it was meant to be just voiceover, but I I loved some of the like (laughs) faces that that these guys made. Um, but Dale, I think Dale's just an analyst and he's a, um, very, um, you know, just an analytical climber and he looks at why something worked for somebody. And he was very much of that old school, like camp that we were just talking about where technique is everything like technique, 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 like use your footwork, you know? And, and, um, I think he was maybe not incensed but i think it was just like flabbergasted that he was seeing what he was seeing because dale had been actively trying that route for a couple years and at the time dale was one of the best climbers in the in the world like he he was certainly one of the top three or four climbers in the states and you know he obsessed about that route dale did like he made impressions of the holds holds and created tinfoil replicas for training on at home i mean he was obsessed and so to see Chris just piss on it like that was just like, (laughs) you know, it just, it's just literally like letting somebody like understand that time travel is possible. Like he was just like, what, you know, like watching Chris just like take it so lightly that he could take a shirt off midway through the route on his red point go. Yeah. You know, it's just like, holy crap. Like game over,
0: man. (laughs) You know, like this is the new way. There's an interesting parallel to that moment that, that really fascinates me. And I'm, I'm embarrassed actually that I didn't ask Adam specifically about this moment. Adam Andra. Uh, I talked to him about just do it for, you know, it, it's coming up next month. And he says that he purposely didn't watch any of the film of just do it so that he could try to on-site it someday. Mm-hmm. And in the video of him, on sighting, he's talking about it and he says, yeah, I had planned when I got to that hold to take my shirt off, take my sweater off. <sighs> like he had planned that from the ground. Wow. Like, no I'll way. get a rest there. I'm going to start with my, like my layer, a uh, layer on. Right. I'm right. Get to that hold. I'm going to remove the layer and continue climbing. Wow. Not knowing that Chris had done that. Not knowing that Chris had done that. Wow. And I
1: That's was like, funny.
0: wow, this is a weird, like, um, yeah, this like weird cool. adaptation that climbers have made. Now we can see there's right. this rest, I'm going to remove my shirt at. And at the time when Chris did it, it was mind blowing, yeah. Like, like everyone who watched that footage laughed out loud. And <laughs> <when> Chris took <laughs> yeah. his fucking shirt off,
1: yeah, because it's so monumental and yet he's so trivial about it, yeah. yeah. That's cool that he did that. That uh, like he isolated himself from all the, the footage of just do it. I mean, that that route was myth, has so much like myth yeah. to it. And, so, and Jesus, man, like I actually talked to Jibay about when he first saw that route and, you know, he had done the first 14A in America on mm-hmm. with to or not to be. Oh. And so he had a real affinity for Smith Rocks and he knew he could climb well there. He was really good at crimping, mm-hmm. And for him, it was really, really important to do that route. And, you know, it was an Alan Watts route, but Jibay did it first. And, and um, it was cool to talk to him about it because, you know, I grew up, You know, I remember that magazine cover with GBA doing the match move on that route. Yeah, that one. (laughs) And just staring (laughs) at that and just being like, that's 14C. Holy shit. You know, like, yeah. So it had this built up reputation. And then for Chris to go there and just basically piss on it was just so cool. I mean, it was just like, it's literally like a, if, if necessary evil two, two weeks earlier hadn't established it, this verified it. Like, yeah you know nobody had repeated necessary evil so nobody really knew how hard that thing was at the time but just do it was a known thing people had mm-hmm. tried it like mark luministral did the second ascent of it and was like and these are the best climbers in the world at the time you know it's like
0: this is hard yeah totally just a whole new it's cool that the next generation had that like i don't even know if it's belief or lack of lack of a barrier like just mm-hmm. Chris just didn't even know that he was supposed to not be able to do that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And you know, he was confident. And I always wonder, like when you watch somebody like, you know, Kelly Slater or Michael Jordan or Chris do do their sports, if they just look at the rest of us and shake their heads and, and they're confused <laughs> why it's so hard for us, because it doesn't feel yeah. the same for them, you know. I mean, yeah. I think for Chris, he saw things like Super Tweak as just a fun thing to do for an afternoon. It wasn't like a Right. monumental project. It was just like, okay, well, where's all the hardest stuff? Point me to the yeah. hardest stuff. I'll do all the hardest stuff and then I'll be the best climber. And it was like that simple. It was like, you know, and it, and it wasn't about, well, I wonder if I can do this. It was like, okay, you know, like Chris just yeah. didn't, he never had this barrier in his brain like he wasn't going to be able to climb
0: something. Totally. Well, you know, with like, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. We're we're way over already, but <laughs> Um, traveling around with like Chris uh, when he's young you know Obi um, you know all these guys I'm sure there was some debauchery happening (laughs) that that probably should better be left untold Um, but were there any stories that came out of those travels that are particularly memorable for you
1: I mean, debauchery. It has to be the PCA is probably the most debauchery. Mm. We didn't even get into the PCA. Jeez. Yeah, the PCA had some legendary after parties and stories leading up to the comps that were. Yeah, I mean, I probably can't say too much about some of that stuff, but (laughs) um, that I mean, it was it was a golden era for sure. It was definitely. um,
0: PCA. What about Nell's? beating Chris. Yeah. Yeah. That was in East, Salt Lake, man. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Nels
1: Nelly was like, certainly like one of the top three boulders in the, in the country at the time. Maybe. I mean, in, in that competition, you had Malcolm Smith and you had, yeah, I think Francois right. competed. And, um, I mean, you had, I think Clem was competing. Like mm-hmm. we had a murder's row of, of male side talent on that, on that comp when Nels beat Chris. And, like yeah like John Stack was a beast I mean these guys were freaking strong all of them Stephen Jeffrey I mean there was like pretty much all the best climbers in the in the like well everybody that came to the trade shows were professional climbers and they always happened to coincide with these trade shows so you had really really deep talent you know like but I mean yeah it was cool Nelly like I I went up to Saskatoon to shoot with him I wanted to do a film about Nels um, but he had kind of uh, bad luck with his shoulders and Mm -hmm. ended up kind of like never getting back to his peak after, after that period of time. And he still loves climbing. He still climbs. Like we shot perfecto with him. Right. But, um, yeah, he just, he was at such a high level back then. I mean, he was just like, talk about somebody who was just didn't know he wasn't able, he he shouldn't be able to compete with these guys. You know, like he's just from a farm town in Canada and trained on these little tiny scruffy walls and came out stronger than everybody, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, man, I, you know, I appreciate this conversation, even, even though we didn't get into PCA much, we didn't talk Climax Media much or Momentum Video Magazine. There's so much more of what you've done and contributed to, to climbing. And, and in particular, like one of the reasons I'm doing this series is because like the 70s Yosemite scene has been done to death. Mm -hmm. Like we, we've got those stories. We've heard those stories. They've been romanticized and mythologized. And I love those stories, you know, Mm um, you know, Yosemite in general, but it, but the stories from like the, the early days of sport climbing and the early days of comp climbing haven't been mythologized in the same way. And I think they deserve to be. Um, and when I started this series, it was like. I'm gonna choose ten ascents, and that proved to be fucking impossible. <laughs> like, it's yeah. so hard to talk about just ten things from this whole decade. Yeah, um, and so many different players have gotten involved, which is cool. So I, I, I appreciate you sitting down and like bringing in some of those other players that maybe weren't the like top moment of the decade or top 10 moments of the decade they're still massively important like the impact boone had on american climbing and your documenting of what was going on then um and you know like i said in the intro the the from crash pads to big holds to uh, to that those comps that changed the direction of climbing in america um yeah so so thank you not only for sitting down and, and talking about this but for doing what you did all those years ago it's my pleasure
1: yeah i'm glad that you're doing this series it's, i think it is a really
0: interesting era in climbing and
1: I'm, I'm glad that it's getting looked at you know getting analyzed a little bit thanks mike man yeah thank you <laughs> one two three
0: All right. Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in the show notes, you'll find all the things you expect, probably some you don't, including a link to Mike's film, The Artist, as well as a link to that list of 90s climbing films and videos that you can watch right now today. If you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review and tell everyone you know at the gym at the crag at all of those social functions where people are just miming beta to each other and together we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents one decade at a time. Secret Stoners, Merry Christmas. Thanks for being here. Whether you're listening on Christmas or not, thank you for being here. And and thanks to my call for doing this. Wow, that was really fun. I've actually listened back to this conversation multiple times already, partly for editing, but I find myself like getting lost in the conversation and realizing I haven't done any editing for the last 20 minutes. So this was a really fun one. I'm not gonna take up a bunch of time today because, well, it's Christmas Eve when I'm recording this. So it's Christmas Day maybe when you're listening to it and I need to get to some other things. But I do want to say... If you haven't joined over at the Patreon, it's free to join and join in the conversation over there. I would love to get your input on what we're going to be listening to next season. I've already cooked up uh, quite a few, actually, maybe too many. I'm going to get yelled at for this, but I've, I've already cooked up a bunch of bonus episodes for patrons. Haven't made them. I shouldn't say cooked up. Uh, I've imagined what they're going to be. So... There are going to be some really fun mini-episodes over there uh, pretty soon, theoretically, assuming I'm not overworking myself, which is entirely possible. All right, that's at patreon.com slash Club, all one word, go join. I'll see you guys next week when we are starting the new year off with the first 14C in America. All right. See you guys then.